Welcome to the Crux Podcast and Sermon of the Week. For more information about the Crux Ministries and Summit Church, please visit us at summitsanmarcos.com. Brokenness. How do I put all the pieces together again? I don't want to heal. It's easier just to hurt and to settle. This is just how I am now. It's just not fair, and I'm a broken person. Kowareta. In Japanese, the word for broken is kowareta. But the Japanese people see brokenness a little bit differently than we do in our culture. Kintsugi is the Japanese art form where pottery is intentionally broken or broken pottery is fixed or made into something new using gold or silver to fill in the cracks and to make pieces of art. There's also this tree sap that they use to bond the gold, the metal, and the silver together so they can hold the pieces of pottery. And these broken pieces make brand new art. Jesus is our healer. To let the healing process begin, there must be a time of mourning and authentically processing To get whole, we must stubbornly pursue wholeness and only participate in godly sorrow. The key to not giving up is understanding the power and grace and God's great ability to turn every situation for our good. God is working for our good, so in order to process the brokenness, we actually mourn. We have godly sorrow, and we let God turn it all around. And so I want to draw our attention a little bit to brokenness, to kintsugi, to what it looks like when broken pieces come together to make something beautiful. You know, in our culture, we have a word called mosaic, right? We don't say kintsugi like the Japanese people. So my first point is to actually mourn. The story of Lazarus speaks of the importance of mourning. Jesus Christ himself is someone who participates in mourning, and he's actually the man who has a solution. He's literally a man, and he has a solution to every single problem. He knows exactly what to say, and Jesus chooses to mourn instead of just offering the solution. Let's go to John chapter 11. I'm going to read it so you don't have to turn there. I'm reading it out of the Passion Translation. So it says, And when Martha heard that Jesus was approaching the village, this is Lazarus' sister, she went out to meet him. But Mary, Martha's sister, who's also Lazarus' sister, stayed at the house. Martha said to Jesus, My Lord, if only you had come sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that if you were to ask God for anything, he would do it for you. And Jesus told her, Your brother will rise and live. She replied, Yes, I know that he will rise and everyone else on the resurrection day. You see, Martha says a little bit more here, but there's kind of a religious spirit that she's dealing with. She's saying, I know that Lazarus is going to rise again, but she's pushing the promises and the healing of God into some future time that's not accessible. How often do we see that in the church today? That yes, this is what the Bible says. Yes, this is God's plan to heal us, but we're going to push that way into the future where no one can access it. That's just going to happen in the last days. That's going to happen during Armageddon. We don't get to participate in that now. Jesus doesn't do that now, even though the Bible says this is who Jesus is. How often do we see that today? And we see another picture when he starts to speak with Mary in verse 29. So Mary hears about Jesus coming. And again, she knows that if Jesus had come while her brother was sick and still alive, Jesus could have healed him. But he was too late and Lazarus was already dead. So Mary says in verse 29, when Mary heard this, she quickly went off to find Jesus. For Jesus was lingering outside the village at the same spot where Martha met him. 
Verse 31, now when Mary's friends who were comforting her noticed how quickly she ran out of the house, they followed her, assuming she was going to the tomb of her brother to mourn. When Mary finally found Jesus outside the village, she fell at his feet in tears and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus looked at Mary and saw her weeping at his feet and all her friends who were there with her grieving, he shuddered with emotion and was deeply moved with tenderness and compassion. And he said to them, where did you bury him? And then it says, Lord, come with us and we'll show you, they replied. In verse 35, the tears streamed down Jesus' face. And so what's crazy here is Jesus Christ, the anointed one. In John eleven eleven, which we didn't read in the ESV, he's basically promising that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's known from the whole time, from when Lazarus was sick, that he was going to go to Bethany and he was going to raise him from the dead. Do you understand that there's an entire crowd, let's call it 30 people here, that are mourning for the loss of Lazarus? That Mary, possibly one of Jesus' closest friends, such a treasured woman to his heart, she is weeping and her brother is dead and she doesn't believe he's coming back. Jesus Christ is the answer. Jesus Christ is the comforter. He is the one who came to Bethany to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And so there is no reason for a single one of these people who have gathered here today to be mourning. There's no reason for them to be broken because Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the resurrection power that is here to fix the problem. He expressly said, I am here to fix your problem. So why is Jesus crying? Why does Jesus stop to weep? Why does he break with the broken woman that he came to fix? So Jesus came to fix the problem, and all the people didn't have to mourn anymore. But in John eleven thirty five 35, in the ESV translation, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. And I think Jesus still stopped and broke with the people. He mourned with Mary because she had to process. She had to engage with this moment that she was going through, right? And I don't believe that Mary's heart would have been healed, even had her brother come back to life. I think there would have been a wound that Jesus was not there for me, that I haven't fully come to terms with the fact that Lazarus is gone. And I think in the moment, even if it was a fast moment, her couple days of mourning of Lazarus being dead and Jesus breaking with her when all those people crying. I think Jesus gave her the space, the empathy, and the partnership in mourning with her. And I think her heart in that moment was actually ready to let go of her brother. That she was ready to say, you know what? It's okay. Lazarus is gone, and I can move on. I can be whole again. And it's from that place of Mary's heart being already healed by the ministry of Jesus that Jesus is ready to perform the miracle. And we're not going to read the story, but Jesus Christ speaks the words of resurrection power and commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb. He fixes the problem. But when Mary was having a meltdown, Jesus didn't say, hey, here's the logical or supernatural answer to what you're going through. He didn't walk her through it, you know? <laughs> he didn't do all this stuff. He actually gave her space to mourn. He actually offered empathy and listened to what she was saying. And this is Jesus Christ. Like I said, he came here to fix the problem. He knows how to fix the problem. But instead of offering a solution, he wept with those who wept. This is our Jesus. Like it says in Romans 12:15. The Bible commands us, even as his followers, to do likewise and to rejoice with those who rejoice, but to mourn with those who mourn. There's something about actually letting yourself mourn that is so powerful and such an important part of the healing process that Jesus Christ, the problem fixer, incarnate, chose to mourn before he fixed it. 
But I think even though we give ourselves time and space to mourn, don't give yourself a season to mourn. Mary didn't stay there. Problem fixed or not. We don't see it because in the Bible, Lazarus rises, right? But I think that her heart had processed it because of the ministry of Jesus. I think that she was ready to move on. And so don't give yourself a chance to mourn, but don't give yourself a whole season to mourn. So now we're going to talk a little bit about godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 in the Berean Study Bible, which is really cool. says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So my question for us tonight is what separates worldly sorrow from godly sorrow? I'm just going to say it. Both of them suck. (laughs) Both times you're feeling broken. Both times you're feeling like you got cheated and it's not fair. And on the front end, I think they look very, very similar. You feel the hurt. But godly sorrow is the one that brings repentance. Worldly sorrow is the one that brings death. So I think it's the result, it's the direction, it's the goal of these sorrows that separates them. On the outset, they both feel exactly the same, but one will lead you to repentance. And it will cause four things to happen in you. You'll start to feel sorry about what you did. You'll want to turn away from it. You'll want to turn to God, and you'll want to make amends or restitution. Because that's the four parts of what repentance really is. It has to do with feeling sorry, turning away from it, turning back to God or what he replaces it with, and actually making amends and restitution, whatever that looks like, restoring what was lost. So every time you are in sorrow, always ask yourself, where is this sorrow pointing me? What is this producing in my life? And remember those four hallmarks of repentance that I just talked about. The first one is that there's contrition or that there's conscience feeling wrong about what you did. The second one is that you're turning away from this thing, that you're actually moving yourself further from the mistake, further from the pain, further from all of that stuff. And you're moving yourself towards, and that's how you go away from it, right? You're moving towards something else. You're moving yourself towards what God is highlighting, what he's replaced that lie with, what he's replacing that relationship with, what he's replacing all that stuff with, with his love. And the fourth thing is restitution and amends, making it right. You know, there's times and there's certain sins, there's times where like if you don't go to the person and say that you're sorry, that's not really full forgiveness. It's not really full repentance. And you know, there's supernatural like sozo things and there's ways that you can like speak to people and stuff without physically being there. You know, there's wisdom with this. But I do think that when we truly repent that there are amends that are made. And sometimes maybe the amend is just that Jesus' death was enough, right? But I do think there's a restitution and that there's an um, amend that is made every time. So again, when you're in sorrow, ask yourself, where is this leading me? What is this sorrow producing in my life? And look for those four things. Because if you're not seeing those four things in your life, this might be a worldly sorrow. You might have just stepped into the season of sorrow instead of the time of mourning. And this might be trying to bring death into your life and steal from what God is doing. So like I just said, don't camp out in your sorrows. It's about to get encouraging. Jesus Christ is the one who is our shepherd. Jesus Christ in Psalm 23.3 He's not just the one who loves us. He's not just the one who leads us. The Bible speaks as him of the one who restores our soul. Your soul is your mind, your will, and emotions. It's every dream you ever had. It's all those emotions of joy, depression, excitement, fear, everything. All of your emotions, Jesus Christ is the one who watches over that and restores it. 
He's the healer who brings life back to our emotions, to all the places where our heart feels dead, where it feels like we're numb and we can't trust again in relationships. Well, guess what? It's not therapy. It's not alcohol. It's Jesus Christ that actually brings those places back to life. And so I just... I'm so excited that we have a Messiah that was wounded for our wounds. Even emotionally, this man was betrayed. This man was rejected. And this man knows what it's like to live the life of a single. You know what I'm saying? This man endured great hardship. <laughs> and he never did find that wife. I'm just kidding. It's the bride of Christ, right? So Psalm 45, 8, it pictures Jesus as the one, as the man who comes with the healing balm, with the alo to restore his people. And I don't think that, I know it's kind of a weird metaphor, but I don't think the alo is just for our bodies. I think it's for our mind too. It's to restore our thoughts and to break those places of anxiety. And so I think when we're in those places and there's brokenness and we're like, God, what do I do with the pieces? Kintsugi, mosaic, if you say, Right? You make those pieces into something beautiful. And I think the way you do that is that godly sorrow that leads you to repentance. And so I think there's a couple things that we can do to really pursue this godly sorrow and to make certain that when we're going through a time of brokenness, that it's leading us closer to repentance. And I think that for all of us here, I don't know if this feels like it's a really deep moment, but Jesus, I think, is inviting us to engage with our brokenness so that he can bring healing. And I think three ways that we can make it through our season, that we can process brokenness in a healthy way, even if it feels like it's something that's way in the past, sometimes Jesus brings it up again. I mean, Lazarus was three days dead. It might be years. (laughs) for some of us, right? And so I think the three things that we can do, hopefully it's three, thank you, Jesus. Okay, so I think the three things that we can do is there's steps in this process. I think the first one is do not isolate yourself. And this is gonna be a little bit silly, so, you know, just don't do it. Don't isolate yourself, right? In Harry Potter, I know this is, I know you you understand where this is going, but Harry Potter, the Order of the Phoenix, I don't know if any of you already know the quote. If you already know the quote, you're like, oh my gosh, I remember that scene. There's a scene where Harry sees these creatures that he can only see because he's witnessed someone dying, right? And he's speaking to Luna Lovegood, right? And she's a little bit crazy, but she's one of the most wise and awesome characters in the film, right? And so Luna has one of the most powerful quotes I've ever experienced in a series ever. You know, and God reminded me of this quote when I was praying for someone on a Sunday where I was like, you need to take courage and see what God's doing in your life. Don't isolate yourself. He loves you and he's placing you in community. This is the time when you need people more than anything. And I feel like God reminded me of that quote. And I'm like, this is weird. I hope this dude's seen Harry Potter because if not, it's going to be weird, right? And so <laughs> anyways, Luna says when she's talking to Harry about Voldemort, I know I said it. She says, well, <laughs> so she says, well, If I were you-know-who, being Voldemort, I'd want you, talking about Harry, to feel cut off from everyone else. Because if it's just you alone, you're not as much of a threat. I'm going to read it again. This is Luna Lovegood talking to Harry about about Voldemort. I know this is crazy, right? So she says, this is the fifth movie. She says, well, if I were you-know-who, I'd want you to feel cut off from everyone else. Because if it's just you alone, you're not as much of a threat. You gotta be in community and you gotta share with people that you trust. I think that's the way that we process our brokenness healthily. That's the way that we actually turn this thing into something, right? And I think it's also important to decompress. 
Make sure that you're spending time to work out or doing some of your hobbies. Don't just stay around the house. I don't know how to stress this enough. I've, I've fought with depression and overcome it to a degree in a lot of ways in my life. And I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm partially extroverted, so I love my introverts in the crowd. But for real, for all of y'all, we all got to get out of the house. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you are dealing with this thing, you have got to get your body out of the house. You have got to get yourself with some people. You got to get yourself out in nature on a walk. You got to go somewhere that's not where you sleep. You know what I'm saying? Don't you lay in your bed and just listen to that My Chemical Romance. You need to get yourself out of the house. Uh. Okay. I don't know where that came from. So anyways, um, when you're broken, just keep moving. You just got to keep going. You know, like if you've seen uh, Finding Nemo, you just got to keep swimming, right? That's the only way you're going to make it. Okay. I know, right? Okay. So the third thing, is you want to make for dang sure that you schedule time to pray. And I'm not talking like, yo, we going to pray when I brush my teeth or something like that. I don't know if y'all tried that, but that's a time where you can't leave, you can't get away. But anyways, I want you to actually schedule it on your calendar. And you might be like, I don't have a planner, I don't have a calendar, I can't do that, I can't handle it. What you need to do is at least like five minutes, just set a time. It can be an archery time. Like at nine o'clock, I'm going to pray for five minutes or I'm going to pray for 30 minutes. Like then this is when you're struggling with a time of brokenness. You know, if you want to get out of this thing, schedule some time to pray. And I challenge you for at least 50% of that time to listen to what God is saying. And you better, and I'm telling you, you better write this stuff down. Like, even if you're like, I just can't handle that. Like, I know I have bad handwriting. You can use your phone if you want, but like, write it down. Like, if God is speaking to you, write this stuff down because this is what's going to let you keep swimming. This is the word that's going to sustain you through this season. Do you know that Jesus Christ himself endured probably one of the hardest hardships in his life, 40 days in the desert without God speaking to him, and he lived off one word of God? It's a powerful word. It's Matthew 3, 17. The Father says, this is my beloved son, and in him I'm well pleased. But for all of Matthew chapter 4, we see no mention of the, the father speaking to Jesus, right? So he has to live for 40 days, no food, no water, no word of God, except you are my beloved son, right? So if God is speaking to you, write this stuff down. I'm sure Jesus had that papyrus. I don't know what it looked like for him. Maybe it was easy because it was just one word, right? But write this stuff down. Did they still use papyrus? I don't even know. It wasn't typewriters. I'll tell you that. So, and if you remember our points, our first point was, was it Kintsugi? No, it wasn't. <laughs> our first point was to, um, was to let God, dude. You just got to let God. Oh my gosh, Jesus. Oh, right. It was to actually mourn. So our first point was to actually mourn. And our second point was to pursue godly sorrow. We talked about three steps about, you know, starting to write down the words that God's saying, get out of your house, you know. And um, man, my memory is just on fire today, not isolating yourself like with Harry Potter. And so the third thing I think that we see is let God turn it all. I think this is how we process brokenness. This is how we get out of it. We let God turn this stuff around. So I want to tell you, and I, I'm here to thoroughly convince you, this is why I came, to convince you that Romans 8.28, I mean, I was invited, but Romans 8.28, God is working everything out for your good. We're not going to read the verse. You just got to believe it's there or look it up. But he has the ability to turn everything around. I mean, this guy, to will and to do, whether this stuff is originating with the devil, whether it's our own mistakes, whether it's something from wherever, God is going to turn this stuff around. All it takes is one decision that I'm going to turn away from sin. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn to Christ, right? 
So God is so good at turning things around that the authors of the Bible, many of them, had to caution people, please do not misunderstand this stuff. Like God's grace and God's ability to turn a situation around, or like Bill Johnson says, God's ability to turn a pair of twos into a winning hand in poker is so good that it messes with our understanding of the scripture. It messes with theology, and you can get off track really quick. This is how powerful God's grace is. I'm going to tell you. So Romans 5.20 and Romans 6.1, basically those three verses between 5.20 and 6.1, it says in the Passion Translation, so then the law was introduced into God's plan to bring the reality of human sinfulness out of hiding. And yet wherever sin increased, this is the key, there was more than enough of God's grace to triumph over it all the more. And just as sin reigned through death, so also this sin-conquering grace will reign as king through righteousness, imparting eternal life through Jesus our Lord and Messiah. So what shall we do then? Do we persist in sin so that God's kindness and grace will increase? What a terrible thought. We have died to sin once and for all as a dead man passes away from this life. So how could we live under sin's rule one moment longer? We see here the caution to not sin and fail. Because when we do, God's empowering grace is so strong that we receive the ability to do what we could not do before and favor superabounds in the places where we fail. This is crazy. The authors of the Bible actually had to say, you guys don't sin just to get grace because God is actually so good that whenever you sin, whenever you're in brokenness, whenever there's something that's messed up, Jesus is so good at turning around that he's going to release his grace and he's going to give you more favor, more power, more anointing. You're going to find yourself growing so close to God that it is unbelievable. It is actually going to offend and confuse the greatest theologians of this day, right? It actually creates and manifests and showcases God's goodness and grace when we fail and he turns it around. So this isn't a license for us to start to fail. But I mean, if you just think about it, many of our heroes of faith in the Bible, these are people that from their place of greatest compromise, of their place of greatest brokenness and loneliness, emotional trauma, physical whatever, right? This is the place where they were right on the verge of their breakthrough. And I guarantee you, if you are Joseph and you are sitting in prison and the baker I don't even remember which one lived. Was it the baker or the cupper? I think it was the baker. Lord Jesus, help. So one of those dudes who had a dream, Joseph interpreted both of them. One of them dies and one of them lives, right? And the guy who lives, Joseph is like, yo, put in a good word for me. This dude forgets, right? He doesn't even do it. And so Joseph is stuck here in prison. There was one way out of prison and the dude failed him, right? And so he doesn't know, but he is 24 hours away from his breakthrough. He has no idea. He thinks he's going to be in prison for years. He thinks he's wrongfully accused, thrown into a pit by his brothers, mistreated, right? And he is right on the verge of breakthrough. In the place of his greatest brokenness, God releases the most empowering grace, almost in a way that would make someone, maybe I should jack my life up like Joseph, so I get the empowering grace of God to actually become a second in command over an entire nation that feeds the entire world. I truly believe that it was Joseph's brokenness and his messed up life that God's grace was shown good and propelled him into his destiny right then and there. And this is just one example. There's tons in scripture, right? Jesus Christ himself, his greatest breakthrough and victory for all of us for all time came from his place of brokenness, his place of suffering, and his place of people slandering him. 
And so this is crazy. This is why the biblical authors have to be like, you really got to be careful because God is so good at turning situations around. You might either think that he meant all the bad things to happen to you in the first place, or you might think that, oh my gosh, maybe I should just go for the druggy life, right? And then get redeemed because the people that come out of that stuff, they are flowing in so much power that it is unbelievable. If you are a theologian and you love Jesus, it is going to hurt your brain when you see these people come to Christ and start raising the dead right in front of your face. You're like, you don't even know the verse. You didn't even say Jesus' name right, right? You know what I'm saying? And these people are getting raised from the dead. These people are getting supernaturally healed and ministered to. And so here's the one I want to focus on. This is King David. He, again, he's 24 hours away from his breakthrough, and he does not know it because he is in the place of his lowest brokenness in his life. And some people argue with me, and they're like, maybe it was the Bathsheba affair that was the worst thing. Let's just say that David had 10 really bad things that happened in his life, right? And so this is just one of them and the one that I see that really stands out, okay? So in 1 Samuel chapter 30, which we're not going to read because it's long, David has been living in compromise, and he's been living in fear. He literally is actually living geographically in the wrong place, out of fear, and he's been consistently disobeying God, possibly even not worshiping him. He definitely hasn't had a word from God in this season, and it's 16 months of living in sin. The Bathsheba thing did not last that long. This is 16 months of him consistently being like, I will not submit to God. I will choose to live in fear, and I'm just going to do all kinds of crazy stuff, and he does, right? And it's weird. Like, if you read the story, it's like, how did we get here, right? And God, God does so much awesome stuff in this story, but God can't even, he can't even do it. By 1 Samuel 30, everything's blown up, everything's on fire, and even God's best attempts to bail David out have totally failed until one moment. There's a moment where David finally starts to cooperate, and he decides, I have had enough. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And he decides, I'm going to repent. I'm going to go to God. I know how this process looks like. He goes through those four steps where he feels bad. And if you want to use the contrition word, because it's English really correct, right? So he feels that conscience, that contrition about what he did. He chooses to turn away from what he did. He didn't even do anything. He just decided in his heart, right? Because, you know, this is like a five-second encounter. He decides that he's not going to do it anymore. He decides he's going to trust God and turn to what God is saying. He's like, you know what? I'm going to move back, right? I'm going to go where God told me to go. I'm going to stop living in fear. This is just a decision. And then the fourth thing that he does is he really does try to make amends. And he even goes to his friends, the people that he's hurt, and he's like, hey guys, you know, and he tries to talk to him. These dudes like try to kill him. It gets ugly, right? And so it's looking real bad for David. People are actually at the point where they're going to kill him because he's messed up so bad. But little does David know his four decisions, which is really one decision to repent, actually from the lowest point and the greatest brokenness released such unbelievable grace that the promise of God that he'd been waiting on since he was a 12-year-old young teenager would finally get fulfilled in a single instant. And it's right here in a 24-hour period of his repentance. This man has been waiting 18 years, running for his life, doing all kinds of crazy stuff, wondering, is the promise of God ever going to break through? Is he ever going to do it? And suddenly, when he chooses to repent from the lowest place, from the greatest brokenness, remember we talked about Mary and people in brokenness, he lets himself mourn. He goes through the process of repentance. And it might have only took him 15 seconds, right? Because these people were about to kill him. He didn't have long, right? And so he repents. And at the age Age of 30, literally in the next chapter within 24 hours, this dude becomes king over Israel just like was always prophesied. He waited 18 years and then 
boom, his promise was totally accomplished in a moment. So if you right now are struggling with brokenness or if in this season God is going to bring something up to try to have you engage with it so he can bring healing and make you whole again so he can restore your soul, I want to tell you there's a great chance, there's a scripturally great chance that you are right on the verge of your breakthrough. And I know we already had that message, right? But you are possibly 24 hours away from seeing this come to pass. And like David, it doesn't matter if it's been 18 years waiting on the same promise from God. It might just happen right now if you're willing to repent. And I want to be super clear for a second. We only receive God's grace amidst our sin when we choose to turn and we're willing to do what he says, right? But man, he releases such immense grace amidst our failures. More grace for more failure. Where sin and brokenness abound, grace super abounds. Kintsugi, where there's the greatest brokenness, the most pieces, there's the most gold that make the most beautiful work of art that people will marvel at for years. And I honestly believe with all of my heart that it was David's brokenness and his massive sin and brokenness that propelled him into his destiny because he repented. And I think had he not gone through a season of brokenness for whatever reason. Sometimes it's literally Satan, right? That is why you are going through brokenness. Sometimes it's our mistakes. Sometimes it's unfair, right? But had he not gone through a season of brokenness, I don't know what would have happened with his destiny. But I do know for sure because God's grace came in a moment of lowness. God's grace came in a moment in his insufficiency and made himself look great that David got the breakthrough. And this is why the biblical authors are so careful to say, hey man, don't just sin because you've seen how powerful God's grace and repentance is. That's how powerful it is, that it messes with our brains, right? To give you an example, as a leader, I could even go on to, to become an alcoholic or something like that for two years. And if I really did stray away and I chose to come back and repent to the Lord, when I really made that decision to come back 100%, Jesus Christ could release so much grace that there is a journey that I could start on where I'm exponentially growing. And if you compare that to a David who had just stayed faithful to the Lord, who had just loved the Lord continually, but it only been like 85% who hadn't really been all in, I guarantee you the David that was all in after falling into sin but coming back is going to skyrocket and exponentially pass up the one who just wasn't really all in but stayed in church and kind of was okay. You know what I'm saying? And this is crazy. This is unfair. This like creates jealousy immediately because literally when people are willing to go all in and say, I've had enough and I'm going to repent, Jesus, if they're all in, man, he releases so much grace that it is unbelievable. It will mess with your theology. That literally, uh, there was a woman in my life who was in leadership that she decided, I am not going to be afraid anymore. I choose to say no to this fear, and I'm going to take it out of my life forever. And this woman in six months learned so much about the Bible that it blew my mind. I have been studying the scriptures for six years and spending so many hours, and she grew so, so fast. But that is the grace of God, my friends. And there is nothing unfair about that. And trust me, this is another sermon, but there is such a great reward for living a life of no compromise. You know, me and Joel even talked about some of that stuff in a previous sermon. So there is something to say about choosing not to sin, right? But if you're going to choose not to sin, but not be all in, it just might not work. <laughs> and so when someone repents and they choose to be all in, you better watch yourself, man, because they might pass you up by a lot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because they're all in and they've chosen, I've had enough and I will not be afraid anymore because I trust my shepherd to restore my soul. So if we really want to heal, if we want to make it through our brokenness, I think it includes actually giving ourselves a chance to mourn. 
I think it includes pursuing godly sorrow, making sure that the sorrow that we're experiencing, the brokenness process that I'm in, is leading me to repentance. That means that it's leading me to turn away from those things that are wrong, to turn towards God, and it's leading me to believe that God can be the one to turn everything around, right? And, and to make that restitution thing. I don't even know why I wrote that, but you got to do that restitution thing, right? And so... <laughs> In your brokenness, know that God is with you and that God will release grace if you turn to him and that grace will propel you into the breakthrough that's in your destiny. So if you're going through brokenness right now, I want to tell you, you might be right on the verge of your destiny. And just like Kintsugi, God will turn our brokenness into something beautiful. So much so that people will start to wonder if the broken pieces were on purpose in the first place. Did this trial really come from God? Was it our mistake? Was it the devil? They'll start to speculate that this darkness might be from Jesus. But let me tell you, friends, I'll give you a hint. James chapter 1, I think it's verse 13. It says, don't be deceived right? Don't let anyone say that when I'm tempted, that I'm being tempted by God, because God is not tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone with evil. The temptation in your life is not from Jesus, right? The desire to do wrong things is not happening because God is testing your heart, right? There's other things going on here. There's mistakes and brokenness and Satan trying to steal. And let me challenge your theology a little bit. There's some things that we can say about the book of Job, but what I definitely want to say is whatever was happening in that, everything that happened to Job was straight from the imagination of Satan. It was something that was birthed out of hell, that plan to kill, steal, and destroy over Job, right? So there's a lot of theological things we could get into, but I want you, I want you to know that Satan is the one who thought all that stuff up. He's the one who had the idea, and he's the one who carried out the things that he stole from Job, right? And so, yeah, in your brokenness, just know how powerful God's grace is to take those broken pieces and to make something beautiful. That even when it feels like we're at our lowest point, and I just don't know how we got here, I don't even know if it's all my fault, but I just want to get out. Jesus Christ is there to be your shepherd, to restore your soul. Jesus Christ is there to propel you into your destiny. And his grace is so good that it's literally going to blow your mind. And he can redeem every single hour. If there's moments where you lived in compromise, and you're like, I've seen all those people who have been studying the word for years. How could I ever do that? How could I ever catch up? They're still studying. You can catch up. I don't know how to explain it, but God's grace is so good. He can turn a pair of twos. He can turn the worst decisions into the very foundation of your ministry. The very times where you felt like this is where I was most tempted, I failed in alcoholism, you might now have a platform to speak to people from that. And I think part of the reason for that is because of the failure in the first place, right? And so again, don't fail. There's a reward for not failing, but God is into kintsugi. God is into making broken pieces into a mosaic that is something beautiful. And so I want to pray over you guys. Don't you dare fall off the table. I want to pray for you guys right now and just release a blessing because I believe for your breakthrough. I want you to know if you didn't know that the crux leaders on this team, and there's a lot of us, right? We are praying for your guys' breakthrough. We are fighting for and believing for your breakthrough. Just ask Taylor Noble. She's doing it, right? We, got, we are praying for you guys, okay? And so I want to pray over you right now as a, almost like a, I don't know, what is that thing called? It's like a show of good faith or something, you know, like, I don't know what it is called. I can't think of the word right now for some reason, but you know, it's kind of like a down payment or a show of good faith that we are praying for you guys and you are getting the breakthrough because I believe that Jesus is right about to propel you into your destiny if you're going through that brokenness right now. And the question is, are you ready to repent? Are you ready to actually mourn, to pursue godly sorrow?
and to let God and believe that God can turn it all around, can turn that losing hand, that depression, that brokenness into a winning hand, into something so powerful with so much grace that it will blow your mind and definitely make your friends start to wonder. So Jesus, I just thank you so much for these people. I just thank you, God. that you love us so much, that each and every one of us, you want to be the shepherd that leads us through that time of brokenness, that helps us to process what the heck is happening to me, what the heck do I do about it? And so I just thank you, God, for your grace, that where our sin and where our failures and our insufficiency abound, and it looks really bad, that's actually the place where you show off and your grace looks great, where your divine enablement is poured out from heaven to release power and strength and life and favor. So God, breathe your power and strength and favor and grace over every area of brokenness in our lives right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Crux Podcast Sermon of the Week. Be sure to visit summitsandmarcos.com for other exciting content from Summit Church.